0: This is the Rits and Cures Podcast.
1: Welcome to tonight's Rits and Cures. And tonight we're going to chat to a doctor with one of the toughest jobs in Victoria. His name is Dr. Danny Sullivan, and he's the Executive Director of Clinical Services at Forensic Care in Victoria. Now, Forensic Care is the statewide service that looks after the mental health of our prison population and those facing the criminal justice system. He'll talk about the health of our prisoners and also some of the challenges faced in providing mental health services to those who are in jail. But first up in Soapbox, we're looking at, believe it or not, Christmas shopping. With Australians receiving 20 million unwanted gifts each Christmas, put your hand up if you're one of them. I am putting my hand up right now. What are some of the legal issues that you should be considering when buying your Christmas presents? Oh, man, did you think we were ever going to head down that category, that territory? Already, and it's only November. Um, The person responsible for that is Melbourne lawyer Katie Miller. Hello, Katie. Nice to see you. Lovely to see you, Uh, Lindy. And the man sitting next to you, who's sitting there patiently going, I can't believe I'm taking part of this conversation, is Melbourne General Practitioner, Dr. Nick Carr. Hello, Nick.
2: Who's very excited about Christmas. Very excited also because it's World Antibiotic Awareness Week. Is it? And at the same time today, it's International Diabetes Day. So we doctors are having a a real field day today it's a
1: plethora of, oh, yes. of we don't uh, know awarenesses. what to celebrate today yes, awareness <laughs> is going on so okay christmas shopping and there are legal ramifications to some of the things that you might buy i mentioned this a little earlier to come a couple of my, couple of my colleagues cause the first thing i thought of was you know warranties and returns policy but another friend of mine said oh drones
0: <laughs>
1: okay. Well, of course, and I don't
3: know that we have discussed drones on this show yet, but if we haven't, uh, a little Christmas gift for your listeners, we'll put it on the list for next year okay. because it's
1: definitely something we should talk about. It's a massive issue. It is huge. Hap- Who owns what airspace, et cetera. Absolutely. Okay, so let's though, look at the legal issues you should consider when buying Christmas gifts but let's shall we shall we contextualize this conversation first?
3: Yes so the context is basically uh, everybody has had the experience of receiving a gift that uh, they'd rather not receive Uh, and because of the society that we have it's not really um, the done thing to tell the person who's given you the gift that actually I don't really like it Uh, and so most of us will at one time or another have found ourselves in a shop trying to negotiate with you know the Christmas casual that you you know, look, uh, I got this terrible sweater from my auntie, can you please take it back? Uh, and at that time of year, I think that you do have a lot of people in shops who might be there just for uh, just for Christmas um, and may not be completely au fait with uh, the rules that relate to returns and when you can return something or not. So to save everyone, you know, an unpleasant conversation a couple of days out
1: from Christmas, I thought we could talk about that tonight. Good for you. Good. For, I didn't even know there were rules associated with it. Are you taking notes, Nick? Go along?
2: I'm, I get so many sweaters that I don't want. I've got cupboards full of these things. I don't have a receipt for a single one of them, but I'm going to start taking them back as soon as I get the advice from you about how I can do it.
1: <laughs> I can't believe I, the, I, just the word sweater makes, <laughs> makes me kind of feel. I mean, the fact that you do it with your accent makes it perfectly okay, but I can't. I don't think the word sweater can come out of my mouth. You know, they're, just, they're jumpers to me. I've heard jumpers, I've heard jerseys. I hear jerseys. jerseys. Jersey. No, I can't go with Jersey. Um, I was reading some of the stats today that on average, each Victorian, hello everyone, spends $562 on Christmas presents each year. <gasps> that seems low to me. It seems low. But that's each
3: person. And I'm okay, pretty sure that there children. are some kids out there who <laughs> do not have that much pocket money. Okay,
1: good. Fair enough. Yes. Uh, and I think in comparison to some other states, we might be a bit stingy, but maybe just things are cheaper here. Uh, Let's just think that's the case. Nick's laughing, saying there's no way that's the case. Okay. When can you return an unwanted Christmas present?
3: So the first thing to know is that the rules are no different at Christmas time compared to any other time of the year. Um, And that means that you can always return something if it's faulty. So that means if it's not fit for purpose um, or, you know, to break it down really simply, if it basically doesn't do what it's meant to do. So if it's a phone that doesn't make phone calls, if it's a TV that doesn't switch on, uh, you know, if it's a jumper that doesn't fit properly. So if you had a jumper or a sweater that had three arms, that would be an example of a jumper that doesn't do the thing that it's meant to do
1: or more or too small or too big that's okay no because it's not faulty
3: that one can be a little bit of a blurry line I think that one would probably more be about does it match the advertised description so I think that's where you know if something is clearly labeled a certain size and you know it's much smaller than that size maybe you'd have a little bit of an argument Um, I, I suspect that maybe men would have an easier time arguing that because of course women know that the sizes in the shops mean absolutely nothing and it's completely random God, good. So, faulty, not fit for purpose. Yep. Um, the second one is yeah, if it doesn't match the advertised description. So, this I think can particularly apply if you're buying things online and so, or if you're buying things over the phone and it's been advertised um, in a certain way and, and you receive it and it's not. Um, and that could be as simple as the colour. You know, sometimes if the colour is a really important part of, of the item, um, so you might have had it advertised as, you know, green or blue or maybe it's a certain size that you've had perfectly measured up to see if you can fit it into your house um, and it arrives and it's not the case, um, that means that the, the goods don't match Uh, The advertised description and you can take it back for that reason. Um, And then the final one, which probably doesn't pop up so much during Christmas time, but might happen a year or two down the track, uh, is when your good doesn't last a reasonable amount of time. And that really depends on what you're buying. So, you know, what's a reasonable time for a fidget spinner will be very different to what's a reasonable time for a smartphone. (laughs)
1: <laughs> or a washing machine, or a washing oh, machine, oh, exactly. You know, yes, that's... I
2: bought my son a fidget spinner the other day. It lasted precisely three and a half hours, well, oh, and that's it's... probably good for a fidget spinner. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> what happened to it? Did it just fall well, apart? Well, he
2: fidgeted and he spun, and the whole thing fell to pieces. Did it really? Yes, I, it cost me two dollars ninety five. So I suspect I got what I paid for. Yeah,
1: I was going to say, do you think that people know what a fidget spinner is? I only found out because someone heard me going, "I've never, I even because there's no hardly any children in my life." Um, which is good by the way um so th- th- someone brought one in and it, so they are they literally are things that just spin around a, a central point so if you
2: if you remember your old greek person sitting by the quayside waiting for the catch to come in with his worry beads yes it's a kind of modern equivalent of that with okay. a spinning thing with a thing you flick and the it- Twizzles around and somehow is immensely satisfying. So
1: if you get three and a half hours worth of fun and enjoyment out of that, then that's considered to be okay. However, if you've given somebody a new washing machine for Christmas, as if, but if you did, uh, and then it lasted like three months then you'd have a case? Is, is that I think three saying? months
3: for a washing machine, you definitely want to be going back to the store and having a chat with them about whether it had been fit for, for purpose and had lasted a reasonable time. Um, with things like washing machines, it can get quite interesting because uh, this is where we often start to see extended warranties being offered. And what will often happen is, you know, you, you buy a washing machine and it'll come with maybe a year or two warranty. Um, and then, you know, as the salesperson is sort of doing their ramp up and, you know, trying to close the deal, um, they'll start talking about extended warranties warranties and saying well it comes with a couple of years um, but you know you can add on another three years and we you know pay an extra amount and you can go up to five um, and you know for some people will look at that and go well you know I just don't want that experience that you know you get to the end of the two years and the day after you know the washing machine drum falls out or something like that so okay fine I'll, I'll pay the money. Um, now,
2: now when I read about extended warranties in one of those magazines that advises you on these things uh, it seemed to me the general advice was they probably weren't worth it. Do you have any view on that?
3: I think that that particular magazine and and that particular advocacy group is um, spot on. So I think that extended warranties are things that sound good because we all think about, you know, what's going to happen the day after the warranty expires. Um, And I think a lot of the time they're not really good value. And the reason for that is that the included warranties are usually no more than what the Australian consumer law will give you. The extended warranties are usually no more than the Australian consumer law will give you. Um, and I think that what they actually do is start to decrease our expectations about how long things should last. I mean, something like a washing machine should be lasting a lot longer than five years. So even with the extended warranty, even if it you know died the day after that five year period, you'd probably still have a pretty good argument that it hadn't lasted a reasonable period of time for a washing machine.
2: So can you tell me about receipts? Because my problem is, of course, I get a gift and then I look at it two months later and I think, I absolutely do not want this thing, but I haven't got a receipt for it. Can I take that back and change it? Can I get a refund? What, if it what... still
1: has the,
3: the... So
2: that's my question. What, what do we what do need to need do to about show... receipts? Yeah, what needs to
1: show? Yeah,
3: so the first thing that um, I'll say is that we've been talking about the Australian Consumer Law and when you can get... A refund, And that's you can get a refund as of right or an exchange. Um, the other side is when you've just changed your mind. And a lot of unwanted gifts fall into the category of I just changed my mind. I didn't want it. I want a different size. Um, in that space, it is very much up to the store's discretion and the store's policy. Um, so they, they can say no. They can say we'll just give you a credit note or we'll exchange it for a different size or a different colour. Um, around this time of year, I think a lot of stores understand that you know a large number of gifts are being exchanged. and so the recommendation is that you act promptly Um, If you are taking something back, the store is going to want to resell it, so keep it in its original packaging, get it back to them as quickly as possible. Maybe not Boxing Day because they've got other things on their mind, but try and act promptly, uh, and it is a good idea to have your receipt. Um, If you're taking something back because it's faulty, you don't have to have a receipt, but if you are basically looking for the store to do you a favour by taking back this unwanted gift, it is a good idea to have a receipt. Now, of course, if it's a gift, where's the receipt? Fun tip... My auntie used to always give us the present, and then in a separate envelope, we would get the receipt in case we wanted to take (laughs) it back. Oh, that's so cute.
1: Yeah, Um, My dad always just goes, and I've got the receipt, should you wish to take it back. But then you have to ask him for it, and then he knows that you don't like it, and oh, that's just fraught.
2: Now, if if you're an old skinflint like me, you do all your shopping in the sale somewhere and the sales always seem to have these notices saying um, you can't bring it back and no refund and that sort of thing. Are they are they allowed to do that for sale items?
3: Uh, not where... You've got the Australian consumer law looking at things. Are are they faulty? Are they fit for purpose? Um, Did they last a reasonable amount of time? Did they match the advertised description? So So even if
2: they say no refund, if the thing is faulty, doesn't match the description, I can go and demand my money back.
3: Absolutely. In fact, I quite enjoy going shopping and seeing those um, signs. And I always have a bit of a giggle at them and go, you can't do that.
1: <laughs> That's funny.
2: You must be great fun
1: but in this. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Oh, no, here she comes again. Yes. Although, I must say, um, next time I'm going shopping, I'm taking you with me because that would be incredibly handy. Um, so we've talked about extended war- warranties. We've talked about if you can keep the original packaging, do so. If you kind of suspect uh, right from the beginning, perhaps hang on to that packaging so it shows that that came from that store. Um, so what can you do... If the store that you go back to says no.
3: So again, it's going to depend on why you're taking it back. So if you're taking it back because it's faulty and the store just digs their heels in and will not refund it, um, my suggestion is that you get on the phone to Consumer Affairs because, as I said, um, it's the Australian consumer law. This is actually a federal law. Um, These shops are actually bound by these things. Um, Sometimes the individual um, at the returns desk may not be completely across that, um, you may not feel completely comfortable asserting your rights in you know, a busy shopping centre, go to Consumer Affairs and they can help you. Um, if on the other hand, it's because you just didn't like your Christmas present, you might not be able to take it much further. Um, and so my suggestion is put it on Gumtree because they actually have a separate category just for unwanted <laughs> Christmas <laughs> do presents. Do they really? They do. <laughs>
1: oh, that's fantastic. I love that. So it seems to me that I'm uh, – having heard this conversation, I'm thinking just gift cards all around now. Uh, if, is, that a, is that a good idea? They, <laughs> they can be. <laughs> um, just, I I'm like asking a lawyer I've, whether that's a good idea. I
2: think the best business in the world is to be a post office selling stamps or a business selling gift cards because what you're doing is selling someone something which they might use at some point in the future a lot of which are going to go into a desk drawer somewhere, get completely lost and forgotten, and they go past their use-by date. That's exactly aren't they, right. Aren't they a massive rip-off, these things?
3: They, they do have their own legal issues. And what you need to remember is that you are essentially exactly that. You're paying a store and you don't actually have any goods for it. So what you're essentially um, buying is a debt. And you're then giving someone a debt. And nothing says, I love you at Christmas, like giving someone a debt. <laughs> um, and that is a debt that the shop will owe to whoever you give the present to.
2: Unless they Um, go bankrupt or something. Well,
3: and that's the problem. So if you are going to give these things, please encourage your gift recipient to use them promptly. I'm terrible at this. I I should never be given gift cards. Um, Because if you do hold on to them for too long uh, and the company goes belly up, uh, you will be what is known as an unsecured creditor, which uh, they are always at the very back of the line. You know, banks and the ATO, they're right up the front of the line. You are way down the end. Um, And we actually had this happen a couple of years ago when... Dick Smith went bankrupt, uh, and they had 2.5 million dollars of gift cards outstanding. Uh, and last year, the um, you know the gift card holders were told, "Look, sorry, you're just not going to recover anything." So, um, you know they they can they can avoid the unwanted gift problem, but they do come with their own legal issues. And
1: did you answer the question about what happens if you go past the expiry date? Because you know, sometimes some of them have expiry dates on them. Did you answer that? Because I've I've, I was reading some text while you were talking, that and I was thinking, actually, yeah, everyone's asking about the expiry. I didn't even know there was an expiry date on a gift card.
3: There, there are expiry dates on a lot of gift cards, and again, I definitely use them beforehand. It is interesting about what happens after that expiry date, because as I said, you've made a payment, um, and essentially, what you're what you're getting in return is a promise. To deliver goods into the future, so it is open to the shops to set terms and conditions around that. Um, most of them will be pretty good if you sort of go in, you know, a couple of days after the, you know, use by date and throw themselves on on the, throw yourself on their mercy, and they'll usually extend it for a week or a month or something. Um, but I wouldn't rely on that. The best thing to do is to try and use them in the Christmas sales. Okay,
1: and so they don't have to abide by that. They don't have. They, they don't have. To. It'll be sort of the. If if they're they're being kind, if they say that's yeah, right. it's past, yep, and but it, you can still buy something, yep. Oh, that's interesting, isn't
2: it? I mean, my experience is exactly because I'm hopeless with gift cards, and they turn up in a drawer. And I've I've actually been into stores with them that are twelve months past their use by date, and they've been kind enough to say, "Yes, you're a complete blithering idiot, but we will honour this gift card." There you go. Let you buy something. Great. Yeah.
1: Jason's texted. I had some hiking boots worth four hundred dollars. Fell apart after a thirty day Everest trek. Some nasty letters and threats to vacate... Mm, I don't think that's even, it's something like that. Uh, so I got my full refund. So, you know, sometimes you need to push. Uh, $400 is quite a lot of money to pay to boots. They Jason said up.
2: they were worth $400. <laughs> I think what he means is he paid $400. I'm not sure they <laughs> were right. worth it by the sound And patently they were not
1: <laughs> worth it. Um, another that says, um, I got, my son got a gift voucher to go scuba diving, but he actually has asthma and can't do it. So they want him to do a different course, which is snorkeling, But we're unkeen as well. Is there any basis to ask for a refund based upon medical reasons? That could. That's a really interesting one. It would depend, I think, on
3: whether or not the medical exclusions were advertised when The scuba diving gift voucher was purchased. So this is where it falls into that idea of does it match the advertised description. So if the advertising has been anyone can do this and the fine print doesn't say anything about medical conditions, um, you might be able to argue that actually you said this was open to everyone and it turns out that it's not. Um, I suspect though that a lot of those gift vouchers, especially if they're online, there's lots of room for fine print. So there probably is something in there about the fine print. Uh, And so then again, if it was given by by, you know, somebody else, you might be able to rely on the blithering idiot defence <laughs> and see if, you know, they will show some mercy, um, but you may not have much in the way of rights.
2: And curiously, here's an example. It's not the gift that's not fit for purpose, but the recipient yeah. wasn't fit for purpose.
3: Well, the gift
1: wasn't fit for purpose for that recipient. Right. Mm. But that, that actually sounds much better, Nick. I'd use that <laughs> next time you went along. And I need to ask the lawyer finally then um, what she thinks about the uh, the Santa Mm, let's say discriminatory clause within his gift-giving uh, rules and regulations are along the naughty and nice categories that the naughty uh, get rejected. Uh, is there any do you have? Do the naughty have any legal? Uh, course of action. There.
3: Look, I think that Santa, if he was ever called before a court, would have a lot of explaining to do. Um, I have not seen such an absolute power grab uh, since, you know, the reserve powers were in question in the 1975 dismissal.
2: And I, d- I think it deserves a plebiscite. Actually, yeah. Stop oh, look,
3: I think just a good old-fashioned judicial review get get it into the High Court's original jurisdiction. Do you
1: think the High Court just seems to have you know a, a, a lot of time on its hands right now. It's not doing anything else. Yeah, look, uh, I mean, leading up
3: to
2: Christmas, Santa, they'll just be clearing off a few things off the books. If Santa got into the High Court, he'd slay them.
1: Oh. <laughs> This is Rits and Cures. Yes, my name is Lindy Burns and with me in the studio this evening are Melbourne GP, Dr. Nick Carr and lawyer Katie Miller. Uh, Nice to have you both along. And our special guest is Dr. Danny Sullivan. Danny is the Executive Director of Clinical Services at Forensic Care in Victoria. Forensic Care is the Victorian service That provides mental health support to anyone in our criminal justice system, such as prisoners or people who pose a high risk of offending in the community. Initially, he trained as a psychiatrist in Melbourne and London and completed degrees in medicine, the law and bioethics. His specialty is prisoners with disabilities and prisoners who have sexually offended. It's a privilege to have you here, Danny. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Lindy. Um, Forensic psychiatry. Explain what that means.
0: We should probably call it forensic mental health because, in fact, it's a multidisciplinary team. It's not just psychiatrists. It's nurses, occupational therapists, psychologists, social workers. Uh, it's to deal with people who are in contact with the law. In this case, it's it's criminal psychiatry. So it's people who have committed offences or, or, or are at risk of offending. So we work in the community. So we're assessing and treating people who uh, have conditions which might lead to them offending. We're also treating them in order that they don't offend. We're treating people in hospital, um, either transferred from prison under the Mental Health Act or who have been found not guilty by reason of mental impairment. And we're treating people in prisons uh, with a main mental health provider for prisoners.
1: Before we get into some of the specifics of of that incredibly big job that you've just described, is this something that you saw yourself pursuing in the early stages of your career or how did how did that path unfold it seems such a specific area of expertise
0: well everyone has their own journey to work but in my case uh, i was an ambivalent medical student i enjoyed psychology and behavioral sciences and when I first uh, set foot on a forensic psychiatry unit in what was then Park, the first patient that I saw grabbed my interest and I knew that this was the course for me. So subsequently I've, I've pursued that and done further studies to get there.
1: And can you just articulate a little bit more about that, about what it was about that patient that made you say to yourself, hey, that, that's, that's where I meant to be?
0: Well, if you do psychiatry, it's usually because you like people and you want to spend time with people and you're interested in what makes them tick. Uh, forensic psychiatry is very strange people uh, So very <laughs> disordered or unusual people And consequently the, the interest factor is greater But also it's, um, there's something remarkably um, obscure about it People are concealed from the rest of the world They're hidden away
2: You mentioned in your introduction, I was very interested in that because your very first category was people who haven't offended, but are at high risk of, or or who might offend.
1: Sounds like Minority Report to me, which is
2: slightly disturbing. So what what group of patients is that? I'm not sure who you mean by that
0: group. Well, both of you have said very interesting things. So Minority Report is fascinating because, of course, we would like to predict Mm. who could offend and prevent them from doing so. And of course, Dr. Nick, in the rest of medicine, we're really keen on prevention. We really want to get in before people who... Of offended so ideally if we can meet people who show risk factors for offending and provide interventions which stop them then that's great for them and it's great for the community so forensic care runs a community program and you can have referrals from GPs from people who self refer from mental health services and we like to see people who have risk factors for offending who have not yet offended and if they're amenable to it and if we can persuade them we'll provide them with treatment medication psychological treatment, uh, a range of advice. Some of our patients stay on for years of treatment uh, and we've been evaluated and shown to reduce re-offending in that population. So I think that's a great outcome. What, what
1: sort of? Cr- sorry to jump in. What sort of criteria are we talking about in, in terms of in, uh, who, who might be at risk of offending? Well,
0: people who identify that they have a propensity to anger, people who show risk factors for sexual offending, such as a sexual attraction to children, uh, people with a fascination with fire, people who have proven that at the end of relationships they can't extricate themselves peaceably, so stalkers, people who find themselves when angry making threats. All of these things can constitute criminal offences, but if you can get in before the person has hit the threshold of having a police called, if they're willing to work with you and see they have a problem, then many of these things are amenable to intervention.
1: What percentage of the population who who do have those aspects of their personality? I'm assuming that's, that's, that's the correct way of describing it. That, that are willing t- to, to admit that in the first place, let alone then take the next step to have something done about it.
0: Again, you're exactly right. Uh, the first thing is to be able to recognise it and the second thing is amenability to treatment. So we spend time preparing treat- people for treatment and persuading them that treatment is in their interests. Uh, we don't really know what percentage there are, but strangely enough th- th- there's a number of people who obviously are um, self-deceived or who-, who persuade themselves that they can manage their own problem. And we all know that. We all know situations in which we think we can manage it ourselves and we're reluctant to seek assistance. But we have a range of evidence-based treatments and we have a range of uh, willing and highly skilled professionals who can do something about that. I and, didn't
1: know that even existed. And,
2: and you've said
0: that you've done some research on this and shown that the intervention
2: is actually effective, which sounds to me incredibly important.
0: Absolutely, you- it is. And, and and the other thing, of course, that you, you brought up, Lindy, is you, know, you talked about personality. And that's very interesting because public mental health services... Are generally geared towards severe mental illness. They're geared towards treating schizophrenia, um, depression so severe that people can't function in the community, uh, conditions which aren't just manageable in general practice or or through general men- medical services. We're also talking about people who don't necessarily fulfil a diagnosis. So their behaviour is the problem, but they would they're, they're certainly odd personalities, but they wouldn't necessarily get a, a diagnosis. Which Ends them up across the threshold for treatment. So I think it's important we have what's called the problem behaviour program, and it focuses upon the behaviour rather than upon a diagnosis, which renders you eligible for public mental health treatment.
1: I don't know if you can answer this question. Ballpark percentage of the population that could be described as odd.
0: <laughs> All the world out uh, uh, odd, <laughs> Apart from them and I, and even and odd. Uh, right. look, it's it's really impossible to determine most of the prevalence figures for uh, personality disorder from population-wide surveys show prevalence of a personality disorder up to 10%. Personality disorder refers to uh, difficulties in your personality which are sufficient to render you, on on the end of a spectrum, definably different from the rest of the population. So you have the same traits that other people have, but they're magnified and they're maladaptive. They cause you problems in the way you interact with people or with, uh, with organisations. So we certainly see numbers of people who... Um, have difficulties when they interact with banks, government departments, spouses, neighbours. We see people uh, whose recognised thought patterns, in fact, are ruminative and they they tend to dwell on slights and they worry about things. So many of these people haven't yet yet to get to the threshold of meeting the police. Uh, So we hope to provide an intervention for those who are willing and able to do it we hope to provide an intervention which prevents that from happening because of course it's not just a disaster for the victim of an offence but the offender it's costly to the to the legal system and to the state but for the victim as well as the offender we have significant consequences we'd like to stop that
1: how do you let people know that that particular service is available i don't i don't know about you Katie or Nick but this is the first i've heard of this perhaps i'm not in a target group, but how do you put, how do you put that information out there?
0: Well, it's, it's a difficult thing to advertise for. We, exactly. We're a public service. Uh, we don't have funds for advertising. What we do is we, uh, we spread the word, we, uh, we present at conferences, we publish papers, we talk about what we do.
1: So I hope that I say like a GP, for example, who might find a person like this sitting across from them? Well, a
0: typical referral pathway may well be that a GP meets someone and they think, well, this is a problem. This is something I'm not quite sure what to do about, so I'll speak to my local mental health service. Your mental health service might say, well, this is not really what we are resourced to do, but we do know a service who will help. And they might then pass you on. Sometimes non-government organisations, sometimes particular service providers have had an experience with forensic care in the past and they refer patients then.
1: Right, yeah.
3: When you do have somebody who's been referred to you or has self-referred and you're going through that process of persuading them or convincing them that uh, they they do have a problem that they need to grapple with, do do you talk about the possibility that this behaviour could end up in an offending sort of situation? I mean, are are they aware that they're essentially being treated in a preventative way to... Oh, absolutely. Stop
0: absolutely. Uh, you know, informed consent means that you need to talk about the consequences of treatment, the risks and benefits, but also the risks and benefits of not receiving treatment. So we're quite steadfast in, in telling people what the potential consequences are. I'll give you an example. Most people don't know the legal definition of stalking. And stalking doesn't mean that you make people scared or hurt them. It means that they are scared. You don't have to intend that to happen. But if that's what happens, that's stalking. So part of the education is, in fact, telling people about what it is that their behaviour um, means that transgresses the law. So one of the things that motivates people is, is adverse consequences, but the other things we try and motivate people with are the positive consequences, because a lot of people who are, who are in this situation are unhappy. They're unhappy with their life, their interactions with other people are fraught. What we hope to do is to give them alternatives, different ways of interacting, teach them skills, and if they can be engaged... Uh, we have we have some populations who just decline to be engaged and they come to us under court orders or they're mandated. Uh, we have a population who want to be engaged. In fact, they want to be engaged with everyone and we, we struggle to get rid of them over time despite the fact that they're no longer benefiting. But we try and strike a happy medium of providing an intervention of sufficient time to uh, inoculate them against further problems.
1: And provide tools for them to be able to do that intervention to a point by themselves.
0: It's about skilling people up and giving them the capacity to manage their own lives in the future. And some people come back for boosters or for further treatment down the track.
3: Yes, that makes sense. So with a lot of the legal and medical issues that we talk about on this show, we often do talk about this balance between uh, prevent- preventing the problem and then dealing with the problem after it arises. Um, do you have the same problem that we all have, that although we know that prevention is the best medicine, the money all goes to the remedial stuff?
0: Of course, and particularly in mental health, we know that uh, it's often the prevention strategies are very diffuse. They're things like housing, good parenting in early childhood nutrition. There, there are a range of things which have happened so far upstream that we don't have an intervention to, to do for them. So yes, we're mainly dealing with secondary and tertiary prevention, people who have already offended or already have those sort of mental health difficulties. And of course, you know, I'm talking about one part of the program. For the rest of it, it's people referred by courts. It's people who have already offended and it's people who uh, who are sent to us because they're seeking an aspect of their treatment or intervention which will be mental health based.
1: Dr Danny Sullivan is our guest tonight on Rits and Cures. He's Executive Director of Clinical Services at Forensic Care in Victoria. They're a service that provides mental health support to anybody in the criminal justice system, prisoners or people who pose a high risk of offending in the community that we've just been, um, been talking about. It's a really interesting text that's come through, and thank you for sending that anonymous person. 0437774774. Danny, homosexuality was once considered a personality disorder. How do we know our current diagnosis regime will not be historically challenged in the future?
0: No, oh, it's a great question. Mm. Well, diagnosis is, of course, politically and culturally laden, and homosexuality was due to attitudes at the time accepted by the American Psychiatric Association as a disorder. Um, that's that's past time. Uh, many of the disorders we are treating uh, are fixed and are static. We've seen them over time. They... they Vary in content across cultures, but they're similar. So if I go to Russia, um, I I don't speak much Russian, but I can probably recognise a person with schizophrenia on the street by their behaviour without having to uh, speak the Russian. Um, So many of the disorders will remain constant, but they're culturally mediated. Personality disorders are a a very political diagnosis, so the nuances of them will, will alter and the diagnostic criteria might change. But what we will continue to see is that they have that core feature of on the continuum of human experience an abnormality which causes problems in a range of different domains
1: i want to step over the line now into the prison system because this is the, the, we've been talking about trying to prevent somebody finding themselves in, and I say I use the word system um, consciously because so m- much about the, the the prison system across the world I think where the the prison population is highly stigmatized it's um, it's feared uh, even once one the ones who have come through and come out the other side and return to society. so how does that affect the type of work that you do with with people who are in jail
0: well when, when you said Lindy, that we step across the line in fact Prisons are still a part of our community. They're walled off and people who go into prison return to the community. They have families outside, they have children, they have spouses. So that's an important thing to recognise. And we, in forensic care, our cohort, our population is not, say, the people of Preston or of uh, Wagga Wagga. It's the people who are in prison. That's our constituency. So we focus upon the fact that they will return to the community. um, And when they return to the community, what happens in prison will come with them. If they have good healthcare, good nutrition, a stable routine, stable accommodation, for many people, prison will not be as aversive as you would think, because their life outside is actually fairly tough. We also try to provide them with good mental health care. Many of the people who come into prison that we see have already been in contact with public mental health services, um, and you know we've we've picked up the pieces after they've fallen out of treatment or or their treatment has stopped. Um, many of the people have substance use problems, which, uh, you know, substance use is not necessarily something of the person's choosing, but we have to pick up the pieces there. So we try and provide both good treatment in prison, but also to link them to services upon leaving prison. And we know that there's a good evidence base that that link to treatment reduces the likelihood of offending and improves health outcomes, both in physical and mental health.
2: And Danny, you must, you must have seen some very complicated cases over the years i've had a couple of referrals from forensic care both of which were recidivist pedophile offenders and i found it very confronting to be asked to take on these people as patients with whom i had to develop a relationship over a long period of time knowing the what for me were very abhorrent crimes that they had committed and how, how do you balance that dealing with the very real human reaction to what some of these people have done with the need to actually
0: help yeah, i always say to people that um that Prison is a, a quite surreal, bizarre place to work in, but uh, at the end of the day, they're just people. And often you find them flawed, nasty, inadequate, difficult, uh, but they're still people. And we focus very much upon the behaviour that they've done rather than their character. Um I think it's the best test of professionalism. Professionalism means that you don't have to like the person. Uh, And this, this, I'm sure, Nick, will have happened to you in your practice as well. You don't have to like the person, but what you do have to do is treat them with respect and provide the same standard of care regardless of whether they're um, unpleasant or not. So prison, I think, brings out the best in medical professionals, the best in terms of dealing with difficult, damaged people who have often had um, horrific upbringings and consequently struggle to trust figures in authority uh, and you're another figure in authority, so you have to gain their trust, you have to treat them with respect, and you have to be proud to be able to provide them with the standard of health care that you think that a person in the community, as a person in prison is, deserves. So I, can't, uh, I think sorry, it's really critical.
1: I, I, I couldn't agree more, and, and it, it's great to hear that that is the way that you approach it, but there must be days where you feel that you're just hitting a brick wall after a brick wall after a brick wall.
0: Uh, well, the uh, the second fallback is a, a great book called The uh, House of God by Samuel Shem. <laughs> and Samuel Shem had a range of, it's a pseudonym for a man who then went on to train in psychiatry. One of the things he said was always remember the patient is the one with the problem.
2: <laughs> so when you
0: go home from work, you, you need to leave it there and say that's their problem and not mine. Yeah. And yeah. how
2: are we doing for funding in this area? It sounds from what you're saying, I mean, you talk about multidisciplinary teams. It sounds to say that you're awash with money and staff, that there are plenty of people doing everything. You've got a new facility, Ravenhall, being completed almost tomorrow, I think, isn't it? It's nearly there. Um, is, is there adequate funding in the territory you work in?
0: Well, I think in the whole of healthcare, there's there's never adequate funding to do everything that you really want. We've certainly been uh, been blessed increasingly with uh, with funding for specific programs that have helped. Uh, we certainly see um, a recognition in governments that that there are needs to be met. But uh, but in terms of overall mental health funding in Australia and indeed internationally, mental health is always the poor cousin to physical health. Um, so it's always very attractive to fund. Cancer care, it's always very attractive to fund paediatrics. Mental health care is not glamorous and consequently we, along with all of our international colleagues, will always say that there is more that could be done. Um, The other thing, of course, is that uh, many years ago, many of the hospital beds in the state were closed down, a process known as deinstitutionalisation. We experienced that as trans-institutionalisation, that is the transfer of people from hospitals who have severe mental illness into inadequate accommodation in the community into um, unstable and shifting places, including prisons. Um, so we, we deal with the sort of consequences long term of many years of governments failing to fund mental health. And that's that's not a particular criticism here. That's an international observation.
3: And so do you think there's something in the, the suggestion or the criticism that prisons are becoming the, the new asylums or the asylums of the 21st century?
0: Oh, it's hard to say. In the United States, of course, which does not have a functional public health system as we understand it, um, in the United States, we know that the closure of state hospitals has led to 10 times the number of people with severe mental illness being in prisons than are in hospitals. So it's a reversed burden. Uh, You you think when you study psychiatry that you will be working in hospitals, but in fact, you're working in prisons. Um, I I, I don't think that's quite in, in that state here, but we are certainly seeing... Um, a high prevalence of mental disorder. That's a fairly consistent figure, which is markedly elevated. So prisons concentrate people with mental disorders because when they transgress boundaries, they're not necessarily picked up by the mental health system. They transgress them in ways that can only be taken into prison.
1: And does that make it more difficult that you've kind of got it, you know... a a collection of people who are living close to each other who have their own mental health issues. I'm not saying everybody in the prison system does, but you've got a concentration there that you perhaps don't have in in wider society.
0: Well, a concentration still means that you can provide resources there. Um, The other difficulty, of course, we have is that um, being in prison and having a mental illness are both causes of stigma, and stigma is a really difficult thing to address. So when we return people to the community, we, uh, we often struggle, as as Nick points out, when, when we refer people to other services, they're not necessarily embracing our patients with open arms and offering them fantastic service. So it's difficult. We have to provide a degree of advocacy on their behalf. That means we want to be uh, providing documentation and treatment and assisting the person to link into a service rather than... Giving them a pat on the back and a bus ticket and saying good luck. Off
1: you go. There's a text, there's a really good text from a psychiatry registrar based in Melbourne that says Danny, so hard to get prisoners into forensic care due to bed restrictions. Should we be able to use the Mental Health Act in prison to enforce treatment? What is your view on this?
0: Well, I personally think that prison is a very coercive place as it is, and to provide involuntary mental health treatment in prison, I think, would be uh, not only ethically very compromising but also risky for the patients and the prisoners. And the reason I say that is that if I uh, give someone medication against their wishes by injection um, in a hospital, they're then under nursing observation. In a prison, they're going to be locked into a cell for 12, 14, 16 hours a day. And if they suffer adverse effects, then they will die or suffer those adverse effects alone. And so I think that's a very difficult situation. Now, you can you can certainly argue that um, that provides a cost-effective solution for um, the bed crisis that we face in, in forensic care, but I don't think that would necessarily provide the solution.
1: How has the experience of working in this field changed you as a person?
0: Oh, look, I think it's been very edifying, actually. I think it's um, it's taught me uh, a lot of patience and tolerance. Um, it's taught me to to think a little about the backstory because often what you see as a, as a manifestation of a very um, difficult and angry person comes with a story that... Um, Warrants sympathy and pity rather than um, you know hostility or avoidance. Uh, I think that's Katie. You probably have a similar experience when you work with in criminal law with with clients who have had difficulties. Um, I've I've really met some wonderful people who work in the field. So people who work in mental health generally um, are fabulous people. They like working with people. They want to have good outcomes. They're remarkably generous and um, and enjoyable to be around. Um, and I've I've experienced by proxy just an amazing tales from my patients so you know my patients like Oliver Sacks whose patients you know have such phenomenal stories that you can't help but marvel at human beings so too I've learned a lot from my patients.
2: There's a sense out there in the community that there are people in prisons possibly in forensic care who are monsters who are the embodiment of evil I uh, I'm not quite convinced that this is true but do you think there really are people who are untreatable who are so bad that there is nothing that we can do?
0: Oh, well, we certainly meet people who are um nasty and sometimes malevolent but um but in many cases no. I think I think that's an exaggeration. There's possibly a very few out there but most of the people actually have there's an explanation for what's happening and there's something that you can find that helps you to understand why that person is that way. Um, Certainly, you know, I I didn't work in here because I had some form of moral complex about curing people of evil. Um, I I worked here because I recognised that personality vulnerabilities and severe mental illness can impact on offending and we can make a difference to that.
1: Is Forensic Care a government organisation?
0: Absolutely. So it used to be called the Victorian Institute of Forensic Mental Health. It's, uh, It's fully publicly funded through a combination of funds from the Department of Justice and Regulation and from the Department of Health and Human Services.
1: So how long have you been with them for now, uh, by now?
0: 13 years.
1: 13 years. And the biggest change in the services that you provide or the way that those services are provided in those 13 years?
0: Uh, the biggest change is that um, I suppose uh, we've gone from muddling on through and sort of uh, bootstrapping solutions to having an evidence base uh, and that there's, there's a lot more uh, frameworks and processes which help us. Um, but also, I mean, we've just seen burgeoning demand.
1: Yes, and and I mean that's not just because we've got burgeoning population. I'd imagine that it's not just about stats, but because of the other issues we've been discussing. Well, that's this right, evening.
0: substance use, and um, but but certainly population is part of it as well. Uh, there's there's multiple factors which play into it, but we certainly find ourselves very busy all the time. I certainly uh, know that I chose the right field.
1: Yes, well, I'm glad that you've spent, found some time to come and talk to us about it this evening, Dr. Danny Sullivan, who's the director of clinical services at Forensic Care. In Victoria, forensic care provides mental health support to people in the criminal justice system, including prisoners and also people who pose a high risk of offending in the community but have not done so. At this point, an interesting approach to it. Thank you so much for telling us a bit of your story this evening on Rits and Cures. And my co-hosts have been Melbourne GP in Dr. Nick Carr and lawyer Katie Miller. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Katie. Thanks, Lindy. And thank you, Danny. And remember that Rits and Cures is available as a podcast. So you need to go to your favorite podcasty downloady place, uh, including on the ABC, and you'll be able to listen back to this particular conversation in the next few days and indeed others that we've had of equal merit in the past.